Welcome to the Deeper Dive Podcast, brought to you by the OC Church of Christ. The Deeper Dive Podcast is about going deeper into God's Word, learning new insight, and taking a fresh look at the verses that impact our daily lives. Today is part two of understanding the gift of a covenant relationship with God with Ed Anton, who taught this at the Deeper Dive teaching event for the OC Church in February. Last episode, Ed covered one covenant with God, and we'll cover two more today. So get your scuba gear, and let's dive deep into God's Word. Here's Ed Anton. Appreciate everybody jumping jumping back here. So let's um, let's take a look at the uh, Noahic covenant that is an, a rather interesting one because you know God God makes man, but man sins rather rather quickly. Uh, God saw all that he made and it was very good. That's creation. That's God's design. That's the opening chapters of the Bible. But then by the time that we make our way over to Genesis 6, 7, and 8, we now have a God who saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. Uh, and it's, it's daunting. It's bleak. It's, um, it's to the point where in, in God realizing that here's, here's where I'm going with this. We're, we're, we're going to actually, through God's grief uh, of, of what he, we experience here, uh, that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Oy. Now, there's something that happens in between this, something that happens in Genesis 6. And if you, if you turn with me over to there, we'll, we'll see what Jews actually point to as the real degradation of humanity. It's, it's not the fall of Genesis 3. It's not the apple or the fruit. It's not an apple, but it's not the fruit. Uh, but but it, is, it is this event that rabbis point to and have always pointed to as the great fall of humanity. In Genesis 6-1, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives as they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, or the giants were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. And then we get this. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Uh, this, this event uh, many point towards in the Mishnah, in the Second Temple literature, in the, the, the rich traditions that are there, especially in the book of First Enoch, as an event that occurred on Mount Hermon. Uh, in, in Hebrew, Hermon means anathema or cursed. Uh, why? Because remember I was talking about these principalities, these sons of God uh, that, that had some sort of superintendence or some sort of uh, maybe they're angelic beings of some sort, but they had some sort of responsibility over 
over the nations later when, when the nations are separated. Before that, they're kind of the divine counsel of God. Uh, they're talked about in, in Psalm 82. They're talked about in Deuteronomy 32. Uh, but, but they're this divine counsel. When we go to Job and we see God uh, bringing the whole counsel of God together, and then the Satan is one that is a uh, kind of a henchman uh, on that council who will kind of do some of the bidding of this council of the, of the uh, heavenly beings. But in the book of First Enoch, there's a story that foots with this story in Genesis 6, where the daughters of man were attractive and the sons of God saw it and they came and took them as their wives and produced some sort of a DNA corrupted species of some sort or another. It's, it's difficult. Uh, I mean, it's kind of what the Nephilim are considered here. But it was also a time of great corruption. And it was this time where these heavenly beings uh, came through Mount Hermon, came to intentionally introduce to mankind cosmetics for lust, weapons for bloodshed, and precious gems for greed. So violence, greed, and lust were all then, in a sense, uh, given technologies or given advancements to be able to stoke it uh, at the same time that they were coming and kind of having their way with the, the, the daughters of men. Uh, it's, an, it's an ugly moment in the timeline of humanity. Uh, why does God allow it? I don't know. Uh, but nonetheless, this stuff did go down and it did end up with what God observed as the wickedness of man was great. Every intention or thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. By the way, just with this in mind, it says that these Raphaim, Nephilim, they go by different, the Anakites, that they were on the earth before and after the flood. Uh, and we, we, we see them, of course, with David, famously with David and Goliath. Uh, we, we see them with Joshua. But here's what's interesting. If you do the hard work of genealogy and you take a look at every nation that Joshua was, was told to obliterate. And sometimes we have a hard time with that, don't we? Like the kids, the animals, like all of them, like obliterate. Every one of them had this corrupted strain of DNA of the Nephilim in them. Uh, and, they, and they had this kind of evil bent introduced into their very genetic code. And they got 400 years. That's 200 generations. Or if we have 40-year generations, that's 100 generations of second chances that God gave them before he set Joshua on the quest of taking that land uh, for the people of God and obliterating this corrupted, macabre, evil mashup of humanity and pure evil that had kind of come to roam the face of the earth. And, and again, all of those people groups, interestingly, that, that get under the ban or get totally obliterated are, are ones that can be traced into this kind of Nephilim uh, corruption of, of, their, um, of their people. That's, that's a side note. But, but it is so great that God realizes that it's not just that. It, it has spread because not only did they come and, and spread their seed and in a sense, corrupt 
the, the uh, genetic code itself, I'm using genetic code. The Bible doesn't use that. It's just, just my way of making sense of it, by the way. But, not, but, but they also have, have actually corrupted just, just, just human humans, not Nephilim humans, just human humans, with lust and greed and violence to, to this point, that we got this going on. And at this point, what, what, what can God do? But, um, but, but to be able to, to now just have God say, you know what, like it was in the days of Noah, Hey, people were eating, drinking, marrying, being given into marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, then the flood came and destroyed them all. Uh, in verse 8 of, of chapter 6 in Genesis, or in verse 7, God says, I'm going to blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then through Noah and through Noah's seed and through Noah's family, God will give it another shot. God will dare again. Even though it looked like it was an almost complete loss, complete loss of lust, violence, and greed, uh, as well as this corruption of seed, you know, it could have been a complete write-off, but he decided, I'm going I'm to give it a shot. I'm going to give it a shot with Noah. And, and so he does. And uh, again, imagine, just imagine the, 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 the horror of, of, of that kind of a purge. But also imagine if you're Noah and, you know, you're, you're hearing the screams and you're realizing this God that I serve, he ain't no joke. Like he just wiped out every friend I've ever had outside of my family. He wiped out every person I've ever met. Everyone with whom I've done business. Like, homie, don't play. But even though it makes him, I think, have a healthy fear of the Lord, uh, I don't think God wants that relationship only to be based on fear. And so as we make our way through the subsiding of the waters, uh, God then makes a covenant with Noah in Genesis 8, verse 20. Uh, and it's as they're coming out. We'll go backwards, just uh, verse 18. So Noah went out as it all dried up. His sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. How many of every animal did Noah bring onto the ark? It wasn't just two. It was seven. Seven of all the clean. Uh, and that meant that, that uh, they could be for sacrifice. Or it meant that he could eat them. Um, men were not eating animals yet uh, until this point. Uh, and, and now they, they do begin to, uh, to eat animals. Uh, verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time, harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. There'll be seasons. There'll be patterns. There'll be rhythms. There'll be hard times. There'll be good times. 
They will still come. And in verse uh, 1 of chapter 9, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply it. So he makes the covenant, and that is the Noahic covenant. Is Here's how it works. You know, don't be killing each other uh, when you when you can now eat meat. But when you do, the life the blood is too sacred. You don't you don't go near the blood, uh, but you can have that. And by the way, I know you're scared of me right now. Uh, you see what I can do. But the real fear is going to be on you so that you can have an easier time on the earth. So now all the beasts, they're going to have a fear of you. Uh, and, and that's going to actually turn out to be pretty handy for you. But here's what's interesting. He needs to kind of fix the fear factor, I think, with God. Because right? there's a lot of fear going on right now. And, and he wants to reestablish the covenant. So look what he says in verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, beasts of the earth, as many as came out of the ark, as is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Otherwise, if there wasn't this covenant, every time it rained, you're like, uh-oh, the jig is up. Right? It's because I was greedy. It's because I was lustful. It's because I was violent. Like, oh, it's coming. I, I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. And now it's not the word rainbow here. It's the word bow. It's like, like, like a bow and arrow bow. I have set my bow in the clouds. If you heard the word bow and you were there then, you would think of a, a bow for destruction, a bow for archery, a bow for killing. So God says, I've set my bow as a sign. This is a sign of the covenant that I will make between you and me and every living creature. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature on all earth and all the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all earth. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, what if that bow was pointing downward? And you're Noah, 
and you're like, whoa, there's the bow. I hope God remembers because that bow is pointing at me. That bow is pointing at the earth. That bow is pointing and trained in the direction of destruction. That's what a bow does. But the bow is not pointing in that direction. Look where it's pointing. That bow is pointing at God. That bow is pointing at Jesus. And when this covenant is broken, and there will come a time when it is broken, and when man will break it, and God does not destroy. Instead, he allows the bow to be trained on him. And God receives the destructive force for it to make it a true covenant. Otherwise, it's just a fake covenant. Otherwise, you break the covenant. Ah, don't worry about it. No, no, no. You're going to break the covenant and that bow will have to be released. But it's not going to be released on the earth because I don't want you to have a covenant of fear. You're not meant to be walking around with like an AK-47 pointing at you through the clouds. It's actually pointing at me. Even more so at my only son whom I love. And we broke the covenant. Abraham's people broke the covenant. We have broken the covenant. But God has made sure that this is not a sham covenant. But a covenant that actually does have teeth. And just as we saw in the last covenant, God unleashes the bow. It's, I think it's why that Jesus is able to say to Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus, doesn't the scripture say that the son of man, that the Messiah has to die? Well, there's no actual chapter and verse that says that. But there's all these covenants. Right? Jesus is the ultimate covering of sin where God has to kill the animals to make a covering for Adam and Eve. Jesus is the one who is bruised, who will later crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice that brings oneness with God for guilt offering, sin offering, fellowship offering, thank offering. It is Jesus who is the grieving groom of, Grom, of Gomer. Jesus, who is the irreconcilable, I mean, the unconsolable father of Israel, uh, of a child who rejects him. Uh, it, is, it is Jesus, time and again, who is the Passover lamb, is the scapegoat, who has all of us put our hands on his head and passes our sins and imputes the sins over to him. who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, who makes sure that the angel of death passes over every one of us. Yeah, we've got, we've got a covenant, a covenant that requires blood. Most of the covenants do in that time. Uh, and that covenant is satisfied with a once-for-all offering, not of an animal, which have to be repeated, year after year, but a once for all, most satisfying 
most astounding, most costly covenant, and that is in Jesus. Why? So that we don't walk around with some covenant of fear. We have a covenant that's unfair because it's fulfilled unfairly, disproportionately by Jesus. The hope is that that disproportionate aspect of it creates in us an amazing gratitude that wells up in an unlimited generosity where, where we are moved, where we realize we can never make it right. Otherwise, if we could, we'd take our foot off the gas. I've done enough. Everything's okay. Or I haven't done enough. Ah, I feel guilty. Everything's not okay. The bow's point, not pointing at you. The bow's pointing up. You're not walking through the, the covenant trail of animals. It's pointing up. You have a God that is to be feared, but a God who doesn't want a relationship with fear. But the fear of the Lord has a value. When you fear something, it's disruptive, and it focuses our mind. Ah, right? I mean, it's a wake-up call. Uh, Otherwise, we, in our dullness, without the disruption of a good alarm, keep going down that path further and further. And sure, from time to time, there's an alarm by God. But it's not a covenant of fear. It's a covenant of love where God will always bear the cost. It's unlike any other construct uh, under heaven. No other philosophy, no other philosophical construct, no other religion. Is anything that comes anywhere close to this? Anybody wants to say all religions? No, they are not. This is so wildly different. Old Testament as well as new. All right. So I'm going to try and take 10 last minutes and bring one last one in for you guys. And I know I've already gone over by one minute. And to my ignorance, I thought maybe we had more time. But we don't. And I get that. But, but I'd love to show you one last really amazing solidification of our covenant with God. And look over in Colossians 2. In Jesus... Verse 9 of chapter 2. In Jesus, or in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also, you were circumcised. And again, that's the great mark of the covenant with Abraham again. A different one. But I'll leave that as it is for Nehemiah. In him, you're also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by the putting off of the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Now, even the uh, Old Testament says circumcision is not just a circumcision of the flesh, but a circumcision of the heart. Sure, I mean, obviously, half the population can't actually uh, experience that, that particular covenantal um, circumcision. But, but, but nonetheless, you do experience a circumcision of the heart, a circumcision of the eyes, of the ears. Uh, those things are all mentioned in the Old Testament. And that is that the callousness or the hardness or the fleshliness or the, the kind of the brutish beastiness of our, of our sinful nature is, is taken away. It's taken away by God. So again, in him you were also circumcised in a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of our fleshliness, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, 
in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So one other covenantal document that I think is a big one that comes into play here. And it's the covenantal document that any person in the first century reading this would have known. It's the covenantal document that took probably half of the Roman Empire and plunged them into servitude, into bond servitude or slavery of, of one sort or another. Uh, and for them to hear the record of debt, the Greek word here is kirographon. Uh, 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 Kiro is the Greek word for hand, and graphon, you know, like graph, uh, is the word for just writing. So it's like handwriting. It, it is a handwritten kind of uh, bill of debt that, that you have. It's like a personal IOU uh, is, is a good way to put it. Again, your, your handwriting bill, bill of debt. And it's in your own handwriting. Um, but, but what is this thing? Because it is a, a handwritten record of debt that stands against us. And if, if one is ever levied against us, if we fail to meet the terms of the covenant, we then enter into slavery. It's kind of a, kind of a dire situation, but not uncommon. And in Colossae, where we're, where we're reading here, or just over the, uh, the, the hill and dale to Laodicea, or very close by to Hierapolis, or in Ephesus, or Smyrna, or Pergamon, all these places... All of the kind of the Roman Empire, they would have been very familiar with this chirographon or this IOU or this, this record of debt. And Paul uses it as a way to explain our covenant with Jesus. Because he's basically saying, we've made a covenant with death. We've made a covenant with slavery. We've made a covenant with sin. And a covenant with evil. And... This covenant, he says, is a record of debt that stood against us, verse 14, with all of its legal demands. So the soul who sins is the soul who dies. We enter into a, uh, an agreement, a deal with the devil, a Faustian bargain, if, uh, if that rings for any of you. But it is this idea in, in, in that society, let's just go there for a second, of just a regular, everyday chirographon. So normally what happens is you need seed, uh, you need supplies, you don't have them. So you sign over uh, a, a record of debt. And if by next year, after the second full moon, I'm not able to pay, well then, if my crop doesn't come in, if I can't pay, then you get what is on here. And since I probably don't have much, except a barren field, which you probably don't want, then guess what you're going to get? Me, as a slave. But look at me. I'm an old man. They don't want me. I'm not worth that much. I got six, seven months of good labor in me. And then I break down. Who do they want? What do you guess? 
my sons, maybe my daughter. That's who they want. It's always who they want. There's a lot more years available there. But what am I going to do? We may die if, if this crop doesn't come in. All is lost. I, I, what, what are you going to do? And, you, and you're in these impossible conditions and impossible situations, as, as was the Roman Empire with so many of its population. And they, and they signed on to these at such a high percentage, it's mind-boggling. And, and the way that it works is you're in a village, and Steve and Charlie and Deb and I, we went to the, the Capernaum village uh, where, where Jesus and Peter and James, you know, where they all lived. And you, you think it's like little house on the prairie, these farms. They're not. No house is out on the prairie. There's a watchtower on the prairie. Everybody else lives packed in next to each other, next to the synagogue. It's like tight community with row homes. So what, what happens is, is when, when it's time for this, this bill to come due and the consequences of this bill to come due, it's been a year and now it's the second full moon. And then the creditor comes and he nails the chirographon over your doorway. And, and when he does, that shows the rest of the community, oh, that's, that's Ed's handwriting. Like, that's Kiro Graphon, my handwriting, right? Kiro hand, Graphon writing. That's my IOU. They're like, well, what are we going to do? We can't fight this creditor. I mean, this is obviously was the agreement. And by the way, you know, I mean, half of us have gone down this route before anyway. So, so he comes and he nails it and I'm out in the field. But he nails it over the door and my kids are gone. And I come home and I come through the village path and I turn the corner and I look at my house and I realize, oh, it's about that time, isn't it? Ooh, it was a full moon last night. Like, I wonder if there's a chance to maybe make a move or do something or refinance. I don't know, if they, well, whatever they did. But, but what was there? And instead, instead of my kids running out of the door, daddy's home, daddy's home run in and throw their arms around my neck, the most joyful hour of the day, I turn the corner and my wife is weeping and there's a chirograph on nailed over our doorpost. And I know what it means and I fall in grief to my knees and we come together and just cry. And it's the worst day of our lives. And our kids are gone. And they've been enslaved. And it's awful. And Paul uses this picture, the worst of all grief, perhaps, to help us understand how awful sin is. This record of indebtedness, this deal with the devil, this immediate gratification, short-term thinking that puts us into these positions is living according to the flesh. And he says, you know the way that it can be fixed? And it can be fixed. Is if someone can pay the debt. And if someone pays the debt, if it's a neighbor, if it's me, my bumper crop comes in. If I, if I pay the debt, then the creditor comes. And he, and he still nails it over my door. But at that time, there's no... Um, acid in ink. So it's on an animal skin, a vellum of some sort. 
And, and so it doesn't bite in. So it can be wiped away. And it's literally the word here. Canceling, canceling is the word exelepho, which is, which is literally just to wipe away. And, and so that certificate, my handwritten IOU, that, that covenant of death that, that I have, it is now on display with honor over my home. And it has been wiped away because I have paid it in full. And my kids come running out and we look at it and we take it down and we're joyful and my wife and our kids and we celebrate and like, thank you, God, deliver it, right? But, but that's not how it works with sin. We don't have what it takes for that. There's only one who has it. And it's Jesus. And and for us, Jesus comes and he takes this ultimate proclamation of shame and grief and dishonor that would broadcast to the world our pain and shame. And instead, Jesus, it says, how has it been, been canceled? He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. It's no longer hanging over my door. It's now hanging over the cross because he's hanging on the cross. And it hangs on the cross with him. But as for me, I am set free from that. He bears the full burden of it, but I am made new. And I am hugging my kids and celebrating with my wife. And I am set free. And I don't ever have to worry about that consequence. And it is a once for all, paid for, paid in full by Jesus Christ. His final words on the cross. It is finished. It is paid in full uh, for us. It's a powerful symbol. The autographon. It's, it's, who we, it's what we have on display, whether we know it or not, until Jesus intercedes. We are the ultimate projection of shame. Until he comes. And then we are this picture of honor and integrity, and a brightness, and solidity, and security. And what happens at this moment? Well, verse 13 says, we're no longer dead. We're no longer uncircumcised. We've been made alive. We've had all of our trespasses forgiven. The record of debt, the consequence, all of that, taken it away. And when does all of this happen? The previous verse, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This all happens in our covenantal connection with Jesus. In baptism. That covenantal connection earns us nothing. As a matter of fact, it is not a work that we do. And the Bible uses the most technical term it can to show that it's not a work that we can do in verse 11. It says in verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision 
made without hands. So this operation that was done to us is made without hands. This removal of our flesh is made without hands. Ah, kiero, that word kiero, remember? Poitus is work. Ah is not. So this, this baptism is ah, kiero, poitus. Not a work done by the hands of men. It is the most technical term to say that baptism is not a work. Baptism is the covenantal connection. Baptism is the gift. Baptism, by engaging in baptism, only makes the connection that much more clear, certain, and secure. It only enhances the gift. The gift of being set free. The gift of having your record of indebtedness removed. The gift of enslavement to sin and death removed. The gift of new life. The gift of an uncircumcised life. The gift of life in Christ is all more certain, more clear, all because it is done in baptism. They're two beautiful pictures. And one is not a picture. One is actually our covenantal connection. And the other is the picture of all that happens when, when, when that happens to us. We've got a God who's really serious about covenants. And he wants you to know for certain. How can I know? How can I know? Well, in our new covenant, we can know because we don't earn it. We don't earn it. It's not a work done by the hands of men. But that baptism is a gift. We receive the gift of God with certainty. What, what if it were just, hey, if you think really good thoughts, it'll come your way. Well, you're going to think, was it good enough? Was it really that good? No. I never have a doubt, as bad as my walk may be at times, I never have a doubt that on March 17th of 1993, I was buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him through the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And with that, my life was made new. The, the, my flesh was circumcised away from me. And the record of indebtedness was completely removed, shame removed, and honor bestowed. And, and my goodness, thank you, God, for making it clear. You know what? That's all we have time for tonight. Thanks. Thank you, Ed Anton. And thank you for listening to the Deeper Dive podcast by the OC Church of Christ. If you want to get connected to us or want to donate to the program, go to our website, occhurchofchrist.com or through social media at the OC Church. Join us next time for our next Deeper Dive. Deeper Dive.